0: Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com.
1: All right, guys. Welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today is a guy named Aaron Schmaus. Now, Aaron and I did not know each other before this episode, but he is a jack of all trades. I mean, he's got his hand in everything between being a podcast host, an author, combat vet, a professional elk caller. I mean... He kind of does it all. And so I'm really excited to hear more about all these things, to hear about his journey through the outdoor industry, as well as hopefully get some tips for calling in some giant bull elk. Um, He's got some cool experience and a lot of amazing stories. So I'm pumped for this one. I can't wait. Let's jump right in. You're listening to The Western Rookie.
0: If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you.
1: At this point in the year, we've all got a pretty good idea of where we're going to be hunting this fall. But now what? If you're anything like me, scouting just got moved to the top of your priority list. Luckily, Vortex has a wide variety of spotting scopes, tripods, and binoculars to get the job done right. I'm going to be spending the rest of my summer behind my Fury 5000 binoculars or getting an up-close look with my Razor HD spotting scope. So if you want to spend the rest of your summer setting yourself up for success this fall, whether that's in the woods of Missouri or the mountains of Colorado, go check out Vortex.com to see their large line of scouting optics. And now, let's jump into today's show presented by Vortex. All right, guys, welcome to today's show and joining me on the show today is a new acquaintance of mine But I feel like we're probably gonna end up being hunting buddies in the long run. Aaron Welcome to the show, man
2: Hey, thanks for having me on man
1: I want to start by giving you a chance to share with the listeners a little bit about yourself hunting history Kind of what you do in the outdoor world right now
2: All right, so I grew up in a small town uh, in montana uh, just South of Helena. And, uh, my grandfather was the president of the Montana guides association and the vice president of the North American guides association. So I grew up, you know, learning a vastly different style of hunting than I, than I do now. Um, you know, but I would, I would be able to go out with him and some of his clients and stuff like that. And we would, I would, I would get to do all the guide type stuff, you know, even though I wasn't a licensed guide, you know, I'd get to go out and I get to learn from these guides and learn from my grandpa, who was the outfitter. And it was, it was amazing. Uh, just being able to grow up that way. I mean, my grandpa's hunted all over the world, Alaska, Africa, you know, all these different places. So he was like a wealth of knowledge. And so the outdoors became, a like a staple in my life and from a really young age and uh so i joined the military uh my grandfather was was in the army air corps and i my only goal was to join the air force um and so ended up joining the air force uh went overseas uh got injured in afghanistan was medically separated uh came back with a few problems, uh, mentally, uh, you know, PTSD, stuff like that, anxiety and blah, 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 all that. And, uh, I would hunt back in Montana. I, I stayed on the East coast for a little while and then hunted back in Montana. And, uh, I was on a really dragging hunt and, Uh, You know, it was one of those ones where you're just working your butt off, sweating, you know, not seeing anything, not hearing anything, no tracks, nothing. And I get to the top of the mountain, throw off my pack, and I just absolutely lost it like a big baby, just snot dripping everywhere and, you know, just boohooing. And I don't know how long that lasted. It was, you know, I don't know maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so. And, uh, I was like, if I had that kind of experience, like I felt so much better afterwards. Um, and if I had that like good of an experience, the rest of the hunt was great. And it seemed like it actually changed the way I hunted as well. Like, um, I ended up getting my bull, um, like three days later, got into elk, like almost immediately that afternoon, like it completely changed my mentality, uh, yeah. around everything. So I was like, if, uh, if I had that kind of experience, maybe other vets would. And, uh, ended up working with not just vets, but you know, other people, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist, none of that. Uh, just, I would bring them out. Uh, we'd go hunting stuff like that. And, uh, it, it really seemed to help with them. And somewhere in all that, um, I ended up writing a book, uh, 10 rules for finding a good hunting partner, kind of reflecting back on my, um, my life in the outdoors as a kid and how, you know, you'd have, you'd have these guys that would snag your hunting spot or, um, you know, they have the, a completely different idea of, um, what it was like to actually be a hunting partner, uh, or just, a a friend in general, or, um, you know, so on and so forth. Right. uh so I created all these like rules um, when around the time I took a guy out for his very first archery elk hunt and, uh, well, his very first hunt period. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're, my buddy Dave and I'm, Dave is actually getting ready to deploy, uh, special operations, um, uh, to, uh, undisclosed location in Africa. And, uh, so we had very similar mentalities and mindsets, especially when it came around with hunting and he grew up with Joe. And, uh, so we're going through and we're like, Oh, this is what makes good hunting partner. And we're listing off all these different things. and Joe learned really quickly how much of a bitch it is to hunt out West in public (laughs) land. Um, and, uh, he, like I was telling you earlier, he shot at two different bulls and missed and got really down on himself. And I was like, dude, you have no idea like how hard it is for people. Uh, like I, I still have friends that have never taken a shot with a bow at an elk. Uh, I still know some people that have never taken a shot with a rifle at an elk. Dang. Um, you know, it just, it can be really, really. So very first hunt and you got a shot at two bulls, then 30 yards. and, you know, he's like, well, when you put it like that, you know, it's, I, I guess it's all right, you know, and then brought him out, um, in November for a, uh, for a rifle hunt. And he finally got to see what the success of notching a tag is like. Uh, he ended up going back early, uh, because he didn't listen. And I hope he's listening to this (laughs) because I'm sure he's listening. This is the second time, by the way, not to get off on a tangent, but this is the second time that Joe did not listen. And I really hope that Dave is listening to this too, because all three (laughs) of us were hunting together and, uh, we were hunting, um, for pigs. Best way that we've found to camp in pig areas is, uh, is with a hammock and all these are spot and stock bow hunts. And we, we tell Joe, we're like, look, get it. You've got to get a Hennessy. They're tough. You know, they come with a net, you know, all these things. And, uh, Joe's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. So we set up camp. Joe doesn't have a Hennessy. He went to Cabela's and bought, I guess, some hammock. I don't, I don't know what brand or anything like that. But buys this hammock, and I'm laying there, I'm all nice and comfortable. Dave's laying there, he's all nice and comfortable. And all of a sudden I hear thud. (laughs) (laughs) And and I just start giggling my ass off because I knew what happened. And (laughs) and Dave is doing the same thing, you know. It's like, you know, your friends gotta laugh at your misery, and then they're like, Oh, are you okay? (laughs) You know and uh so he gets up and you know he ties it up or whatever gets back in the hammock same thing snap thud ugh. and uh so i mean i just can't contain it i'm like all out crying <laughs> laughing and i said hey joe how's that hennessy <laughs> and he's like fuck you rah, 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 rah. <laughs> you know <laughs> and uh so he had a very miserable night we made a makeshift tent out of his uh out of his hennessy he had crabs crawling all over him and like got eaten by mosquitoes and uh so anyway yeah he didn't listen on this elk hunt and used uh uninsulated boots in a foot of snow and so we spotted you know first group of cows and uh there was another herd, there were no bulls with those cows, but there was another herd like a mile and a half away and like ants all over the top of this bald hilltop. And, um, I'm like, that's where we're going. And he's like, I can't do it. My feet are frozen. And so he ended up going back to the truck. I ended up getting my bull and I call him and he goes, are you freaking kidding me? I literally just got back to the truck. So he ended up having to come right back. And, you know, he got to experience all that. And, um, like we, you know, that was ours together. And to this day, he said, we got an elk in Montana. And, and I say the same thing, like when I'm with my partners and stuff like that, I'm like, yeah, we got two bears. We got a bull. We got two bulls, whatever, you know, because it's, is very much a team oriented thing. and And that's kind of the way I treat it so
1: yeah that makes sense i mean the the whole concept behind hunting a lot of people think like oh who got it like who pulled the trigger but at the end of the day there's a lot of teamwork that goes into it i mean the pack out even just spotting them like going out with my buddy sean uh he's been on the podcast on both podcasts a couple times now and he drew a moose tag in colorado and drew a mountain goat tag in colorado and I didn't pull the trigger on either of them. In fact, I didn't even have a rifle with me on either of them. But when we talk about that hunt, it's like, dude, we we got a mountain goat, man. Like, yeah. the only thing that he did differently than me is pull the trigger and notch a tag. Everything right. else, it was teamwork, you know. And well, you
2: suffer together, Absolutely. You know, uh, everything... You know, if, if you're working as a true team, like we did in the military or whatever, uh, re- uh, in football or you name it, whatever sport, um, you know, somebody is like you're sharing the load yep. of, of everything. And it becomes really miserable if you have a weak link in that team. Um, yeah. we've, we've had it where, you know, somebody wouldn't carry water or you name it. And it's like, are they going to freaking do anything? You know, it's, and it's like, all of a sudden, when you're suffering, you know, your emotions run high. And the little things that might not bother you in, you know, a home setting become extremely expanded. And um yeah, it's, it's, it's so important. That's why I think, my hunting buddies are you know my best friends like i i would bury a body with them you know yeah
1: yeah i mean the the group of guys that i hunt with in colorado like i feel pretty close to probably 50 percent of them some of the guys are new or i just don't have a super um long lasting relationship with them like i just i'm seeing them at elk camp and that's about it but some of those guys at elk camp, I mean, are my closest friends. And uh, one of the other nice things is no matter who gets a shot at an animal, everybody splits the meat evenly. Uh, If we process the meat, if we like take it somewhere to get it processed, everyone puts in the same amount for it. And it really is like a family unit out there. I mean, we all, if you get a bull down and you don't get back to cell service until 11 PM and you're like, Hey, I need people. Everyone shows up you'll, you'll have eight guys follow you down the mountain to go pack your bull out, no matter what time, day or night, what the weather conditions are. And there's something about that. So I'm, I'm actually really curious about your book. Uh, 10, uh,
2: 10 rules for finding a good hunting
1: partner. I was going to say, I thought it was 10 things you find in a good hunting partner. So I would have butchered that anyways, but, um, yeah, to hear about that, because when you don't have the same values the same goals the same strategies when you go out in the woods or hit the mountain or the desert or wherever you hunt it's there's going to be trying times and like you said the emotions can run high uh, on a miss on a blown opportunity somebody doesn't do something the right way and you spook all the animals or you know uh there's there's a thousand things that could go wrong out there and when they do you better make sure you've got the right guys with you
2: yeah and we we go uh well, I say we uh i I went through all of that um in that book uh we didn't have a whole lot that went wrong, I guess, so to speak, except that uh Joe missed a couple of those bulls <laughs> um but we you know there was there was all of that you know, where somebody would get frustrated at somebody or um You know, it's not a very long book. It's easy to read, you know, um, for all my Marine buddies out there, I I wrote it in crayon. So, um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really easy to understand stuff like that. There's, um, I don't re I wrote the way that I speak. So if you're easily offended, you might not want to read it. Um, (laughs) they're probably
1: not listening to this podcast if they're easily offended. So well that's
2: that's good then that's good, yeah, but so you you said you're uh you're gonna get into bow hunting um for elk
1: yeah that is that is the next stage of my progression in hunting. I mean I've archery hunted for animals in the past. I just when I moved out to Colorado, so I lived there for two years, and I told myself i'm gonna try to figure out this hunting thing out west with a rifle, one because. I think the, the success rate at that point with a bow on a bull elk was like 3%. And I was like, listen, I want, I want meat more than anything, but I also want to learn. And if I can learn with a rifle and still have success, hopefully I can translate the information that I gather into success with the, with a bow, you know, two, three years down the road. And at this point I've hunted, uh, three years with my rifle I got two bulls and a mule deer buck, and I have not done any of it with my bow yet. But I'm hoping that either this year or next year will be my first year carrying a bow and chasing after Western Big Game.
2: Well, it, it's a double-edged sword, right? You, you're going to learn a lot with a rifle, but you are really going to learn a lot with a bow. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with you you you're so close to these animals um, doesn't matter what animal it is uh, you're so close to these animals that you will learn their mannerisms like yesterday I could actually text you a video. I had a a buck walk to within seven yards of me just out here you know on my property um and then it like, He's kind of curious and stuff like that, but you learn these techniques and stuff like that with a bow and you become much more conscious of noise, of scent, um, you know, their mannerisms, you know, you start to learn when they look like they're agitated or, you know, when they're on guard and all that kind of stuff. Not much of that I learned uh you know, in rifle season just because you could be so far away. Yeah. And you know, not that I'm taking thousand yard shots or anything. It's just a couple hundred yards is a big difference between a couple hundred yards and 30. Yeah. You know, uh so you get up close and personal with these animals and you start to learn what they're willing to accept uh you know from you, which is not much, but it's still something. And, um, like what kind of movement they're willing to accept or when they're willing to accept noise or, uh, maybe calling when they're willing to accept calling and stuff like that. And, uh, I've, I've called in elk, uh, all year long. I've called them in, in June. Uh, I've called them in, in March, December, November, Damn. um, um, I mean, you can call in elk. It's just, they're talking all year long. Yeah, Uh, You just have to know what to say and when to say it. And uh, the same thing with your techniques. You need to know what to do and when to do it.
1: Yeah. That, I mean, I've, I've heard, and I've seen with different species so far that they've all got like this, this, audio bubble a visual bubble a scent bubble um Mm -hmm. and they'll tolerate certain things at certain distances and then other things they won't tolerate like the scent bubble is almost non-existent right like if they smell you yeah it it could (laughs) be a mile away and they're Yeah. yeah they're not gonna put up with it but like the sound portion of it they hear noises i've i've been sitting there watching elk and heard a gunshot That seemed to me not that far away and the elk just continued to graze Mm -hmm. and I'm like, man, I would have thought that they would kind of bolt at any gunshot and they just didn't. And so seeing that stuff is pretty cool, but I'm really excited for that up close and personal, you know, figuring out what it's like being in there, being close to the herd. Oh my gosh.
2: You will be addicted.
1: I know I'm, I'm hesitant to buy any more rifles. I love rifles. I love shooting. I love shooting my bow, pistol, shotguns, rifles, you name it. If it can be shot, I have fun with it. But I'm like, I know that as soon as I get in there and I've got elk bugling and I've got my bow in hand, there's going to be no going back. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to be like, all right, I'm going to, I'm getting rid of all my rifles and I'm just going with a bow from now on. And I hear people that they start with a bow and they never even pick up a rifle. Um, and I, I respect that. I love, I just like both, man. There's something about it. There's something about being able to hit hit steel or kill an animal at 600 yards. And there's something about being so intimate with it and up close. I, I feel like I use the word intimate when it comes to archery hunting a lot because it is, yeah, I mean, it you're, is. you're right on top of them. And I, I've noticed that with whitetail hunting, especially like, you can watch the arrow enter and exit the animal. That's crazy. Yeah. People don't, until you see it in person, you don't fully understand in the way it sounds when it hits right behind the shoulder yeah. or that chest cavity. And anyways, I'm, I'm pretty pumped. So I'm going to be getting a lot of pointers from you on what that oh. looks like for elk hunting, um, you know, calling techniques. I have zero experience calling elk. I've heard them bugle, but typically we're, we're hunting late October or early November. And so they will, but I don't think anybody at camp uses any type of calling techniques when we go out there. I think, I think their whole idea is just get close without them being alerted to your presence at all.
2: So I, so this is kind of like a two-part thing. Uh, the first part I'm going to give credit to uh, a buddy of mine. Um, Tony Burleson he owns dark Timber coffee uh but I was hunting over by his neck of the woods in Montana over by Ennis and ended up downing a cow and I'm a few miles in and this was an area that he had somewhat sent me to and he's working and stuff like that he shut down his shop and was like hey I'll come pack it out for you and, and I'm like oh wow that's awesome you know so that was the first part that kind of attributes to hunting buddies and like the kind of people that I want to be around. Um, but the other thing is when I had that, that cow down and, you know, I was working her up and everything. Um, I had a whole line of cows and my phone had died, which really pissed me off because it was probably the most epic scene. Uh, I think I've ever seen in the outdoors uh had a big full moon coming up over the, up over the mountain. And there's a whole line of cows coming down and they're talking as they're coming down. And I was like, it, like, it was so bright. I know my phone would have picked it up. And I was like, I was so mad that I didn't conserve battery, <laughs> you know, but I pull out a call and I'm actually calling to him and I called him to within 40 yards of me.
1: Jeez.
2: Just, Just to see if I could, just to see if they would, they would talk and stuff like that and continue to talk. So you can call elk at any time of year. Yeah. Uh, They are curious, um, you know, all times of the year. So, I mean, you, you just the people who don't use cow calling techniques or just call call techniques and stuff like that. I mean, obviously as a rifle hunter, you don't necessarily need it because you're mostly glassing or whatever. And, you know, but if you're, I have used call techniques and stuff like that when I'm rifle hunting, but, uh, kind of to go back to what you were saying though, when it comes to bow hunting versus rifle hunting, I still have the same 270 Savage that I had when I was 12 years old. Um and I don't have another long range rifle just because I I just I don't hunt with a with a rifle that much, you know.
1: Yeah. Um along the along the lines of calling you said you can call them in year round or you know at all different times of the year. What Would you mind breaking down both like what during the rut calling looks like for you, what your strategies are, kind of how you go about that. And then also, uh, how to go about it. If you are hunting maybe a later season where you're a month or two removed from the rut.
2: Yeah. So it's a little bit complicated to answer, uh, just because you've got different times, right. Even, even during the rut. So You've got pre-rut where the bulls are, you know, rubbing their antlers and stuff like that. They're trying to jockey for position, um, you know, trying to figure out who is who in their area. Um, The cows aren't really coming into estrus, even though there's some debate um, from people. You know, they think that the cows are coming in earlier and the bigger bulls are breeding earlier. Um, And then most of the satellites and all that kind of stuff are the ones that are breeding you know later on in September or whatever there's there's some debate about that, but um, I've found that early season, yeah, you can you can definitely call, but it's not gonna be those loud blown out bugles and stuff like that. you know, it might just be kind of a you know, just kind of them just kind of making sounds and stuff like that, you know they'll be rubbing trees a lot um you know, trying to mark up areas and stuff. And the thing that I've found the most with the bulls, and I guess we'll concentrate on bulls with this. The thing that I found with bulls the most in the early season is they will come in very quiet. Um, Like it's, it's amazing how big these animals are and how quiet they can be or how loud they can be. Yeah. Um, But they'll come in like really quiet you know, you might, you've, you've really got to be on your toes. Um, you might hear a twig snap or something like that. Maybe an antler, you know, brush a limb. Um, but they're just coming to check it out. They're trying to see who you are, stuff like that. Um, I've, uh, I've seen, and I'm going to try it this year just because I think, um, I think this is what, what kind of caused it called in a bull and it sounded like the, the stick I was using sounded like an antler, right? So as I'm like smacking this other stick, uh, this other limb on a tree, it sounded like two antlers kind of tickling each other, you know, not like all out fighting and stuff, but just kind of tickling each other. Um, I think, and this is just a theory that this bull was like, Hey, you know, what's going on over there. There's two bulls over there. I thought it was just one, you know, and you know, I was raking trees and all that kind of stuff. And then I'd go back to like kind of smacking that thing just mainly because I liked the way it sounded. And, uh, you know, this bull comes in and just like stands there and is was like, just watching me through the trees completely still like just watching And I didn't notice he was there until I like felt like something was watching me and I like turned. I was, Oh shit. There he (laughs) is. Uh, So obviously I blew that, but you know, it was, that's something I'm going to try this year. I'm going to bring out a couple, maybe small antlers or something like that and, you know, tap them around and and see how that works. Um, But early season, they just seem to be really focused on jockeying for position Um, maybe breaking up areas a little bit. A lot of times you'll see bulls together. Um, And, you know, as it gets into mid to late September, uh, they really break up. And that's when the fighting starts to begin. They start really pushing each other around and, um, you know, looking for cows and stuff like that. seems like, too, uh, the past five years, Um, most of the sounds that I've heard, uh, like where they're really wailing and, you know, stuff like that you see on Eastman's and all that kind of stuff seems to be in like early October, the past few years. Um, doesn't mean that's the same everywhere. It does seem to be area specific. Yeah. Um, but most of the areas that I've hunted seem to be that way. Uh, and that's like, seems to be more of like the rut, the traditional rut activity where they're really chasing around cows or really breeding cows and stuff like that. Uh, during that time, you've got to treat it, it. There's a bunch of different situations. So I can confuse the crap out of you if you've never done it before. Uh, not intentionally, but there's just so much interdependence on what the situation is. Um, as to what calls you should do. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, in different distances also, um, you know, I've called them in, uh, from, I don't know, three, 400 yards, 500 yards. Uh, and then I've had them where they won't come in within 80 yards, you know, just be really thick area and stuff like that. And they just won't come in and I can kind of see them through the trees or whatever, but still won't do anything. You know, so it just, it just really depends, you know, I wasn't saying the right things to him or maybe he had a bunch of cows or whatever. Um, so a lot of, a lot of it is situational based, a great, um, a great guy to check out is Paul Medell. Um, Paul does an exceptional job at talking about situations, what to say, what the elk is saying to you um, and stuff like that. He's, he's got a fascinating story as well. Um, when it, when it comes to elk, just absolutely fascinating story. And the guy's an absolute killer, like gets it done every single year, um, with his bow. I don't think he's ever gone into rifle season. Like he's just amazing. Uh, so when it comes to calling and stuff like that, I would I'd definitely point somebody to that when it comes to situation and learn the elk language yeah um what they're saying what distances and and just play around with it you know mess up
1: that's how you learn i feel like as if elk hunting isn't at intimidating enough for a first time hunter then it's like man there's languages and you have to know if you're 400 yards versus 80 yards versus uh first week of september first week of october but at the end of the day, I mean, getting out there and learning it, there's not going to be a better substitute than doing that. Like going out and yeah. figuring it out, being out there, even if you're tagging along on a hunt, if you don't draw a tag, but your buddy does and, and you go out there with him and learn that way. Or maybe you do have a tag and you put a group of guys together, a couple that know what they're doing and a couple that are learning for the first time. Um, that's what I'm excited about. I, I really yeah. am excited to become a student of elk and not be a student of other elk hunters, but to actually see like, what are these things doing day in and day out? How do they interact with each other? Where are they going when nobody else is around?
2: Yeah. One thing I'd I'd interject with that, just, just a second though, learn the difference between an elk and an elk hunter. Um. I can't tell you how many people I've called in (laughs) just from actually making elk sounds. Uh, and not that I'm, you know, Corey Jacobson, Corey kicks my ass every year. Uh, when we go to the world elk calling championship, um, you know, and Rocky is his dad. I've, I've had the opportunity. He's a friend of mine. I, I get to learn from him too, but, um, those guys are absolutely phenomenal but I'm pretty decent, uh, at making those elk sounds and stuff. So I'll play with people, uh, out in the woods and it sounds like a dick move, but you would be surprised at how many elk I've called in using those other callers. Oh, Um, yeah. And you know, those other hunters not playing the wind correctly, or maybe just not quite making those sounds. And then I'll use like that triangular that triangular uh formation with that other hunter and draw an elk that way. Um Dang. so I've actually got a video, I think it's on my TikTok maybe, uh calling in elk hunters or whatever. Yeah. But we called in two bulls because that elk hunter didn't know what he was doing and it ended up calling in that elk hunter and then i barked at him and he's like stops like knocks an arrow and i mean he's like right out in the open i mean but um (laughs) you know it's, it's fun like if you can learn the difference between an elk hunter and an actual elk Sometimes it's really hard to tell, but most of the time you can tell. Uh that will that can help you a lot. So and also learning elk hunter behavior will help you hunt elk. Uh because most of the time the people that are out there, uh, I think Corey had put out there with his elk 101 series that it was like 10% of elk hunters actually kill elk with a bow or something like that. Yeah. Uh so And then one out of 10 actually get their elk every year or some, something similar to that. Right. So to put that in perspective, right. That means that over 90% of the people that are out there are not where the elk are or are not doing what the elk are doing. So if you can learn how people, are acting statistically you can kind of figure out where the elk are not and you know go where the elk are yeah so it is it is kind of a psychology thing i guess you know but uh, that can be very beneficial
1: and it, it's interesting because there are definitely things that are crossovers between multiple species because hunting public land white-tailed deer it's it's very similar you know you can, you can go and get set up based on where you know all of the hunting pressure is going to be. And when all of these guys are diving to the back corner of the property where they don't think they're going to run into competition, well, the deer are moving to the front corner of the property because everyone's already at the back. And, uh, yeah, so playing, playing the animals and the hunters to make it all come together, that's, that's very interesting, and I wouldn't have thought about it like that for elk hunting.
2: Yeah, I mean those. That's why you know they say those, um, uh, those easy to get to places, are the ones that most of the people are going. Yeah, most people don't want to work. Um, I have this perspective on psychology. Now I'm big, I'm a big proponent of psychology. Um, people, and I, this comes down to politics. It comes down to your everyday life. This comes down, just everything, right? Um, People do not like being uncomfortable. In general, they don't like being uncomfortable, but the people that are most successful are the ones that are willing to make themselves uncomfortable and to suffer through it. That being said, uh, if you are used to taking the easy path, where are the animals going to go? they're going to go somewhere where it's hard for you yeah. to get to them. Right. So statistically, if most of those animals are in the hard places, most of the people are not there. Um, so challenge yourself. That's, that's the thing with, uh, with elk hunting that I absolutely love. You're always challenging yourself. Um, So, yeah, I mean, th- oh, that was something I was going to say earlier too. Don't be afraid to screw up. You're going to, I promise you will screw up. Uh, don't be afraid of it. Learn from it. You know, um, also don't be afraid to be aggressive. A lot of times, um, people are too shy about how they approach a situation. That doesn't mean, you know, right. You get an elk to bugle at you. Uh, let's say you've got a location bugle, location bugle, Uh, for those who don't know, is going to be a higher pitch, um, not real long, you know, just um, there's not going to be a lot of chuckles in it or anything like that. Um, It's just trying to figure out who's in the area, right? If you come back with a challenge bugle, On that and just real aggressive. And you can tell emotion, you know, uh, if you've got a bull that's really pissed off, you can tell what kind of emotion that he's got going on. Right. Um, like you'll blow your eardrums out if he's close. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can really tell and if you go back at him with a challenge bugle like that, he's going to be like, "Whoa, oh, what's wrong with this guy? It's like, it's like the difference, you know, we're sitting here talking like this and I'm like, uh, Hey Dan. And you come back, what do you want? You know, it's like, yeah. okay. What's your deal? <laughs> you know? So I'm going to avoid that conversation, you know? So sorry. My dog's over here, like all up in my wires and stuff. Grace go. Um, so that's, that's the thing too, you know, don't escalate it so much. Like you don't go to fight right away, but, um, you know, escalate it up, you know, you don't, you don't just go all out to blows when you've got a problem with somebody. You're like, usually it just kind of escalates, escalates, escalates. And then finally it gets to the point where you're about to knock each other's heads off, Yeah, but piss him off you know, but do it in a way where it's like, you're not intimidating him, you know? Yeah. So it's
1: very interesting to, to play the emotion side of it and to hear the different sounds. I mean, anytime you, anytime you spend a lot of time with an animal, you can tell when it's, uh, even with a dog, you know, you can tell when it's a friendly bark, when it's a curious bark, when they're upset, um, Doing the same thing with turkey or deer or, yeah, just anything. And so I'm I'm excited to get to that point where I've been around elk enough to where I can be like, dude, that elk isn't upset at all. He's just kind of hanging out, chilling with the cows, or, dude, that one's upset. I think he's going to come in just by listening to a bugle. Man, yeah. it just it seems so far off, but... I am really, really excited for that.
2: And there's, um, there's all kinds of, uh, different calling tutorials and stuff like that out there. Um, elk nut with Paul Medell. I, I, so he's a competitor of Rocky mountain hunting calls and I'm, I'm with the Rocky mountain hunting calls. Um, but I love his content. I, I love his, um, his outlook on it, his his take on calling, all that kind of stuff. And it works. Uh so I have his app. Um you know, uh Elk 101. Elk 101 is a great one. Corey does a, a phenomenal job um with that. Uh I'm working on a call series video um more like how to call with a diaphragm, uh like how to use it stuff like that for those that have never used a diaphragm, never Turkey hunted stuff like that. Um, how to make those elk sounds and stuff. Uh, we're taking a different approach on it. I can't really let it go here. Um, but, uh, Rocky mountain elk foundation is, is really interested in this video as well. Um, so there's, there's tons of different calling videos out there. Uh, just, practice, you know, get you um, you know, shameless plug, go to Rocky Mountain hunting calls and and order some diaphragms. Um, but you know, get out there and actually just practice, you know, with your diaphragms. And, you know, when you, it's true, you know, keep them with you in the car. And, you know, when you get a long drive or you're just driving to work or whatever, make noise and you'll get there. Uh especially if you're, you know looking at these apps or videos or you know, whatever, you'll you'll get there. It just takes time.
1: See, that's one thing that I need to get in the mindset of like, although I might not have uh an archery hunt plan this year or a rut hunt plan this year, um, I need to get in the mindset of training now so that a year down the road, two years down the road, five years down the road, when I draw like my my most coveted tag, I'm ready. And I'm not just scrambling to be prepared the last three months leading up to season. Um and so that's great. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna hop on there and start start practicing my calls. I've I've never blown any type of alcohol ever. Not even kind of tried it. So this is gonna be (laughs) maybe I'll make a how not to video that you guys can also share.
2: (laughs) Well, if I was if I was to give you some tips, um like if you rub your tongue from the back of your teeth towards the back of your mouth on the roof, right? You'll see, or well, you'll see, you'll feel, uh, kind of a, a sharp shelf, right? And that's where you're going to set your, your call. So you're going to have latex out, right? And the plate to the top, if you've got a pallet plate, you're going to have that towards the roof of your mouth. And that's where you're going to set that diaphragm. And you're gonna push it up, uh, like my buddy Kent Anderson says, uh, like you're smishing, like you're smashing bubblegum to the roof of your mouth, just so it seals that tape. Uh, you don't want the air to go over top of the diaphragm, you want it to go underneath in between your tongue and the diaphragm. Um, and then most people they blow too hard, they think you have to really blow on these things. You really do not actually. If like you were to put your finger over your over your lips and like you were to tell somebody shh, like be quiet, you yeah. know, that's really all it takes. And that tongue Dang. position will start you out with making sound. And then the more pressure you put on the tongue, uh, uh, your tongue on the diaphragm, uh, the higher pitch it is. It's that simple. And then the less pressure you put on it, the the lower the tone. Dang. It's it's really that simple. A lot of people have trouble with that in the beginning because they try and blow too hard. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, that's where it screws everything up.
1: That makes sense, man. Uh, I I've tried that with Turkey calling and I absolutely suck at Turkey calling and <laughs> I don't really try that hard. I ended up getting a box call cause I was like, "Yeah, oh, this is way easier. Um, but yeah, I feel like I've done that multiple times where I almost, I almost choke the, um, the diaphragm call out because I'm blowing too hard. You know, I'm thinking, man, I've got to scream through this thing, but it's not designed for that. So, um, yeah. dude, even just that little bit of advice, <laughs> I'm getting more and more fired up, man.
2: Yeah. I'll, I'll, anytime, man, uh, I'll, I'll work with you and stuff like that. We'll do little, you know, video calls if you want or whatever. And um, also The other thing that, that people don't realize is these diaphragms and Rocky Mountain has done a phenomenal job with this, not to plug Rocky Mountain too much, but uh, they've done a phenomenal job with this um, is the technology with the diaphragm itself. So you've got different widths of your frame. You've got different pallet plates. You've got uh, different latex. You've got, you know, all kinds of different things that actually play a factor. So if you've got that, like, uh, Randy Newberg always says that big wide Scandinavian mouth, um, then you're going to want a wider frame. Most people from what I've seen from doing uh, call seminars and, uh, you know, these different, uh, sportsman shows and stuff like that. Um, most people can use, like our GTP frame or, um, you know, something like that. Um, and, and that seems to fit him really well. Every once in a while you have somebody with like a really high roof of their mouth, Corey, uh, Jacobson, he's got a really high roof. Uh, so that's why he uses the dome type, um, calls, um, you know, and every once in a while you have somebody with a really narrow, uh, width mouth and, So they have to go with a smaller frame. So that's, that's also something to, uh, to keep in mind as well.
1: Okay, man, there's so much. It's funny because I'm to the point with whitetail hunting where a lot of stuff is just second nature to me and I don't think about it. And so like, if I go to share information with somebody who's wanting to get into hunting, um, I I'm realizing now I've got to simplify things for other people because when it's second nature you you miss a lot of the details that they're like wait a minute what that didn't make sense like i feel like you skipped five chapters and uh and now seeing that with elk hunting and trying to learn it how many things i'm gonna have to relearn you know some things will be similar but for the most part i've got to come into this with a clean slate and really become a student of it all
2: yeah, we, we all do that, man. We're all guilty of it. I think that's human nature. Um, I was at the professional outdoor media association conference all last week and I'm sitting there in some of the downtime writing a script for one of my videos. And I'm sitting there with a call in my mouth and I'm like, eh, and you know, like moving my tongue and then I'd stop and I'd have to write something. And then I I'm sitting there and I'm doing it again. And I'm like, cause all these things are like subconscious, you know, yeah. like I just do it. I throw a call in my mouth and I do it. I've it's sometimes hard to actually explain what it is exactly that you're doing. So, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, we, as hunters and stuff, we've, we've got to be cognizant of it. And the other thing is something that I've found with newer hunters, if you make things too difficult, it's like a kid, you know, um, if you make things too difficult they tend to lose interest in it you know yeah. uh so that kiss method really you know really does something there
1: yeah that yeah that's perfect man i think i think it's going to be a fun year it's going to be a fun journey leading up to my first archery elk hunt and then also i'm i'm going to be looking at a ton of stuff as far as calling when it's not the peak of the rut because like I said the guys that I hunt with typically shy away from it and I'm kind of curious to see what success we would have if we implemented some of these later season techniques into into the rifle hunt um what do you have coming up this year do you do you put in for a lot of -of out-of-state tags or do you stick pretty close to Montana Uh,
2: so I'm I'm excited about it but i'm also um regretting it in a way because this has been like a life long dream of mine uh i get to go on a caribou hunt uh in alaska but it's during september yeah so <laughs> so i'm like uh chasing elk is my passion um I'm going with, um, my buddy, well, I'm going with a few different buddies, but one of them is the owner of 6am outdoors. He's got a moose tag and, uh, we really support each other a lot, you know, uh, when it comes to hunts and stuff. And, um, so I bought a caribou tag to help him with his moose tag. Uh, so we're going to hunt moose and stuff like that and, you know, get a chance. I'm going to try and stick a caribou, but, uh, so I'm really excited about that um, really dreading it. Like I said, all of September, normally I am gone. Uh, I'm out hunting elk or, you know, all that kind of stuff. I usually don't even concentrate on mule deer until the rut. Um, so up here, that's usually in, you know, later November. Um, so I just, my passion is elk. Um, I will, I didn't get a Wyoming tag this year. Uh, I also did not get an Idaho tag this year. Um, so I'm stuck to Montana and Alaska. Um, I mean, it could be a lot worse, man. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I was saying. Oh, shucks, you know? (laughs) Um, but it is fun, you know, going to the different States and stuff like that. And, um, I, have friends in all of those Western states and stuff. Um, so I, I get to do that. Uh, I want to try and set up a hog hunt. Like I won't hunt hogs. Um, in, well, this started out being Dave's spot, my buddy, Dave, uh, he was the one that brought me there. So I will not hunt a place that one of my buddies has showed me. It's just like, in my ethics, I, I will not do it. Um, so with him being in Africa, um, I don't think we're going to be able to work out a hog hunt. I don't know how long he's going to be there or whatever. Um, so that's something that I really want to do again. It's been a few years since I've done it. So that's usually a blast.
1: Yeah, we do. I did my first, uh, public land hog hunt this year with a group called hunts for heroes similar to what you're talking about they take out um you know law enforcement first responders military members vets uh and they take them out hunting and it's kind of a healing time like even just sitting around the fire and hearing stories from each of these guys uh was really awesome but we went down to texas did a public land hunt and they do that every year and um it's Dude, it's so much fun just cruising in there. And there's a lot of people from different states that come down for this one specific area and they just push pigs back and forth. And that's awesome. It's all out warfare. And then I got the opportunity to go down with Rogue Texan Outfitters, a couple of guys who uh, own a helicopter, and we did some helicopter oh, hog hunting. Dude, that's that, that one. I'm be telling you so right fun. now, you will never like, there is nothing that I've found that can compare to flying around in a helicopter with a suppressed AR just shooting any pig or coyote that you see, it was unbelievable. And so I'm hoping that I can, I can keep going back there and doing that.
2: That would be so much fun that I've seen those videos and stuff like that of people doing that kind of stuff. And man, I'm like, I'm not going to I'm not going to lie. I'm like low key jealous of that kind of stuff. I'm oh like, yeah, man. I want to do that so bad. Man, uh, I just it, need
1: to, I need to set up a time and just put it out there to the listeners because, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not cheap to go fly a helicopter, especially with the price of oh, fuel nowadays, yeah, but no kidding. Uh, for people to come down, just spend a weekend and everybody get an hour uh, to be up in the helicopter chasing pigs. Like, I've, I can't remember exactly how many pigs we shot now. I've said it a 1,000 times, and I don't know the numbers. But I know throughout the day, the group of us that went out, it was 150 pigs and 18 coyotes. Uh, Holy crap. In one day with the That's helicopter. Crazy. And they've had guys that push over the 200 mark and, like, 30 coyotes um, in one day. And so, yeah, when, I, when I'm talking nonstop action, I mean – some guys are coming back with 12 to 15 empty 30 round mags after
2: one hour of flying. That is freaking awesome. That, you know, so two things, if any of your listeners work for Chevron Exxon or BP and feel like sponsoring me, just I'm only looking for gas. I'm only looking for gas for the year. Um, (laughs) hit me up. Um, but the other thing is like, If you look at the conservation, like a lot of even hunters, like we, we fight amongst ourselves, which is extremely stupid because we're already a minority group anyway.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but if you look at the impact that those pigs have on the landscape, it is crazy. Like where we go, um, these are swampy areas that we're going and we've never seen a snake. Um, there's no low nesting birds. Uh, you hardly see any deer. Yep. Uh, we see, we call them like AIDS rats, but they're, <laughs> they're, uh, raccoons that are like, they look like they have mange and extremely skinny. Like they just, they do not look healthy just because I, I think they're just not eating enough. Yeah. Um, but these pigs like just tear up everything and uh it's it's just it's unbelievable uh the wildlife impact that that these animals have on the landscape uh hawaii's going through it right now where they're talking about having i think governmental hunters come in and kill a bunch of pigs why not just have hunters go in and kill the pigs you know and, yeah. and actually charge for it hunters would do it like in a heartbeat well, I've you know? heard of I've
1: heard of plenty of states that are doing that. Uh Missouri where I'm at now is one of them where you you cannot shoot pigs on public land in
2: Missouri anymore. Yeah. I was talking because, to a wildlife official about that.
1: Yeah. And I'm like, Are you serious? And they're like, Well, I mean, it makes it harder for the government trappers to come in. Yeah. It splits them up. But I'm like, Man, we, we raise pigs for a while. I know how social they are. They do not like being alone. In fact if you take a pig and put it in a pen by itself, it's going to do everything it can to get out. You put two pigs in that pen together, they might not even try because yeah. they don't care as much. And um, yeah. Well, there's a lot comes, of
2: similarities with people. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If if you have that one other pig in there, but I, I just don't know. They, obviously these people are professionals. I hope they know what they're doing, but when I talk to people in places like Texas and I tell them that you can't shoot pigs on public land here, they're like, what are they doing, man? It's going to get out of control. They'll never be able to keep up. So and...
2: wildlife official that I talked to, not not to cut you off, um, he's part of Peterson's outdoor ministry and they actually do um, a lot of veteran hunts and stuff like that quite a bit. Um, so that's how I was able to meet with this guy. And it was through professional outdoor media association. And the way he'd explained it to me was that when you shoot into a group of pigs, they disperse and it's not that they're alone, but they end up finding other groups of pigs and they'll create other groups of pigs and they spread out more. And what they found, I guess, in Missouri is out of all the surrounding States with pigs, uh their numbers are much lower now i don't know if maybe the biologist is lying like they did with wolves and you know all that kind of or grizzlies and you know all that kind of stuff or if maybe there's some merit to that and the way he was explaining it actually made some decent sense you know yeah um you know, that, that these animals would disperse and maybe you'd have two or three that would go this way, two or three that would go this way. And, you know, they just end up populating landscape. If you, if you raise pigs, you know how many piglets they can have. And, um, some different biologists that I've talked to have said that each litter of pigs, um, 80%, I think it is on average are female. So, and I think it's, I am probably going to butcher this, but I want to say at three men, three months they can breed again. Yeah. Um, so if you take 80% of a 10 litter, um, group, you know, that's eight pigs, you know, that's, that's a lot of expansion really quick. So I think that's what they were trying to avoid with that, but yeah. Yeah. Knows?
1: And I mean, I can, I can understand some of that stuff in, You're right. Like, we don't have near the pig numbers that they do in Oklahoma or Arkansas. But when I look at it and I think, all right, imagine, you know, even 50,000 hunters going out there versus a dozen state trappers, or I don't know how many state trappers they have. Um, It just seems like we could do a lot more work if we all put our heads together. Or they said, hey, listen, here's an incentive. Here's a a bonus deer tag if you participate in this you know, one week hog hunt. Yeah. Um, something like that. But again, I'm not a professional. I'm just another dude with an opinion. And uh
2: Yeah. I uh, think Texas does one thing really right. And I understand why we went away from um, you know, selling wild game. I, I completely I completely get it. Yeah. Um but Texas will allow you to sell pigs to butchers and i mean obviously there's stipulations on that and stuff like that um but i think that's something that that texas has done right yeah um and i think more of the states should probably follow suit with that um where you can sell your hogs and stuff like that to you know different meat processors or something like that um i hate to say it but maybe that'll help with the uh meat crisis that we're having right now uh, where you coincidentally have like six food processing plants burned down in like the same week (laughs) but
1: the the things that happen man I just (laughs) there's not much you can do other than just shake your head and like really really yeah Uh, well
2: thankfully I don't have to worry about meat yeah um you know I I do pretty decent in the outdoors. And we just butchered one of our cows. So, uh, I I'm not at a meat crisis, but, um, that's, that's another thing that should be influenced on, on hunters. Um, is that, you know, even a little bit of this meat, you know, you shoot one deer, depending on where you are, the size of the deer, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you're, you're looking at 30 pounds or more yeah. of meat, depending on the size. And, um, you know, most families, they're not going to eat, you know, two and three pounds of meat. And like, it's not a pound of meat per person normally, yeah. you know, usually it's like six ounces or so per person. So if you've got a family of four, you're at like a pound of meat, you know, yeah. uh, per meal per day. Right. And that's, if you're even eating red meat, every meal, um, that's, that's a lot, you know, 30, that's 30 days of meat, you know, that you don't have to pay for. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot that, that really needs to be pushed on the population where it could really help. And, uh, if nothing else, you buy a tag, you don't get anything, what's the worst thing that happens? You lose 10 bucks or 20 bucks or something like that. And then you get to spend a bunch of time in the outdoors and which is a much healthier lifestyle, much more mentally freeing. And, um, you know, learn about the animals that you're voting on, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, that's what I tell people all the time. Like, uh, a hunting trip where you come back with no meat isn't necessarily unsuccessful. Like it's still the greatest vacation I could think of like going yeah. and hiking around the mountains, crossing creeks, seeing animals, just being in nature.
2: Uh you see so many things in the outdoors. Like if you spend enough time in the outdoors, you see so many fascinating things. Yeah. Um like that you you might you might find it on YouTube. Yeah. Um but like I've seen um I've seen elk drop their calves, you know, that's that's really cool to me. I've seen uh deer drop their calves or you know their uh fawns um I've also watched Grizzlies ladder uh the mountain looking for those elk calves and snatch up an elk calf. Um uh, that's the kind of stuff that you see on like Discovery Channel. <laughs>
1: yeah for real you know
2: and it's like holy shit that was freaking awesome you know um uh, the people that that are voting and it all comes down to local voting right the people that are voting um for all of these things that impact our wildlife and our hunting and all those kinds of things really should get out there and see where their meat comes from uh and and see what things are actually affecting wildlife um but you know, I get off my soapbox. But
1: no, I totally agree, man. Uh, well, I want to thank you for hopping on the show with me, and I can't believe that we're already over an hour on this one. <sighs> no, right. Um, I've got, I am actually about to head to Wisconsin. I've got a cruise up there. I'm going to do a fishing trip on Lake Superior. Uh, my Sweet. dad's getting married, so I've got a long drive ahead of me today. But before we hop off the call. I want to give you a chance to share with the listeners where can they find your book? Where can they follow along with you? Where can they listen to the podcast? All of that stuff.
2: Yeah. So, uh, I have a podcast. It's called the primitive Republic. Uh, you can find it on shoot libs and Apple, you know, all those places you can find podcasts. Um, it's more risque. I've transitioned it a, a little way. It's still very, outdoor based, but, um, some of our episodes are just more things that affect human life in general. Like we had a girl that, uh, came out and said that her family had inducted her into a cult from a young age. And she was talking about how she had to get out of that cult, which was astounding to me. I didn't realize that kind of crap still happened. Um, so we've got all kinds of different things like that, uh, on there. Uh, so you can, you can find me on Instagram as the Primitive Republic Podcast or Primitive Republic Podcast. Um, on Facebook, Primitive Republic. Um, TikTok is primitive underscore rep. And then if you want to find my book, you can find it on Amazon, um, and I think Barnesandnoble.com and like anywhere you can buy books online.
1: Nice, man. Well, dude, I really do appreciate you hopping on. I'm going to, I'm going to hop online and pick up a call and start practicing. I absolutely, I'm more fired up now for getting out there and figuring out elk hunting and their behavior and their language and all of that than I ever have been. And so, uh, thank you for joining me and dude, good luck this year. I'm, I'm pumped to see how your elk hunt turns out as well as the caribou and moose combo hunt.
2: Yeah. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. I'm I'm extremely excited about it as well. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, hit me up after this and, uh, we'll see about getting you some calls to start out with.
1: Yeah. That sounds great, man. I appreciate All it. All right, buddy. Thank you. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I had a great time chatting with Aaron, hearing all about his stories and success. It's just fun to talk to people who know how to go out there and get it done. And his knowledge when it comes to calling in elk, I, I hope to attain that at some point because there's something about communicating with animals. It, it's a ton of fun going out there and hunting them. And, you know, they might, might not have any idea that you're there. But when you can actually like vocalize and communicate in their own language if you will uh whether that's turkey or ducks and geese or deer or elk i just want to know it like i feel like that adds a whole nother element to big game hunting and i'm hoping to go out and start branching out to some of these other western states i want to hit wyoming and montana for sure um, i'm actually going to be going out in like a month and a half to utah tag along on my first archery mule deer hunt and so lots going on hopefully a lot more states this year than i have in the past and we'll see how it all goes so until next time get out there and chase new adventure